You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. She was alone, something she was never meant to be. Her people were tribal, blood and bond, and her ability to use the Force gave her a galaxy of brethren from all species. Even after she left the Jedi Temple, she could feel the others when she wanted to, the ebb and flow of them in the Force around her. Until, of course, she couldn't. Now she almost preferred the solitude, If she was alone, she didn't have to make choices that affected anyone other than herself. Fix a malfunctioning motivator, or not. Eat, or not. Sleep, or not. Dream, or not. She tried to dream as little as possible, but that day in particular wasn't good for it. Empire Day. Across the galaxy from the core to the outer rim, though somewhat less enthusiastically in the latter, There would be festivities commemorating the establishment of order and government by Emperor Palpatine. It was the first such celebration. The new empire was only a year old, but the idea of celebrating the day at all nauseated her. Welcome everyone to the 602 Club. We've got a special supplemental episode coming your way here. Ruby is serving up the drinks fast and furiously. And no, we're not talking about fast and furious, the films. So... You know, John Mills, settle down. I I, I know you're super you had excited. My hopes up you, there, Matt. Yeah, you. I totally hurts. just dashed your your hopes. I apologize. Uh, and got Bruce Gibson here with us as well. Yes, and I'm hoping I'm going to talk about something besides Fast and Furious. <laughs> okay, well, while you guys fight that out, <laughs> I'm going to remind everybody that, uh, of course, we're part of the Trek FM network. So thankful to be part of that. And you can find all the shows on iTunes.com slash Trek FM where we are a feature provider. And Bruce, while they're over there checking us out on iTunes, what should they do? Hey, they should rate us. They should uh, not only just give us, you know, some stars, which you can do five, which is the most, but also do a written review because it helps people find the show because people who like this type of show like you, it makes it easier for them to find it when they go into the iTunes store. That's right. That's right. Well, they can also find us there on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. We have our listeners only discussion group that you can find on Facebook. Type Babel into the search field there on Facebook. Or if you're on our website, trek.fm, click discussion on any of the show pages and that'll bring you there as well. And last but not least, of course, uh, you can send us an email. Just go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that'll come straight to us. Now, guys, this is not what our supplemental is on, but I had a quick question for you because we got some news about that looming Han Solo, a Star Wars story film, and they found their Lando, Donald Glover. Um, I think most people will probably know him from Community. Your thoughts quickly. Well, I'm excited because as soon as I heard this news, it was the first thing that got me excited about a spinoff film of Han Solo because I wasn't that excited about a young Han Solo movie because it's not going to have Harrison Ford. So I've kind of put in the back of my mind of, well, you know, we'll, we'll see when we get to it. But then when they announced Donald to play 
Lando Calrissian, I thought, you know what? I'm actually getting excited about this because now we're going to see Han, Chewie, and Lando together. And I'm like, okay, now I'm getting pumped. Now I'm getting excited. And I was also excited the fact that this was a Donald in the news that I was actually happy to hear about this week. <laughs> well, uh, I can say that I was, uh, you know, I, I don't know that my excitement level has changed any, but I can say that um, it's nice to finally see uh, Lando Calrissian get some love in the headlines having to do with Star Wars. Uh, I think it's long overdue, but uh, they're, you know, they're, you know, they're obviously they care with their casting with these new films. And I think that there is this is just further confirmation. I, you know, I think it's a it's a strong choice. I think that he'll do a fine job, whether the movie turns out well or not, you know, is still up in the air. We'll find out. But, uh, I, you know, I think it's good casting news. No, I agree with you guys. Uh, I'm I'm on the side of, you know, this is not the film that I'm really looking for uh, and, and looking forward to. But the fact that Donald has been cast as Lando is exciting to me. He's a fantastic actor. I've enjoyed in, in community. You know, he has a great range, comedic and otherwise. And so I think he is a is a perfect choice to play a young Lando. So I have no problems with this. And I hope that they'll, you know, uh, find a way to, in some ways, kind of ground the Lando character who uh, is talking to somebody on a Facebook chat group that I'm on with Bruce called Twi'lex of the Night. And one of the people there mentioned something about, you know, the Lando really seems to have become more Billy D these days. And it's kind of almost like a parody of Lando. And so I'd like to see Lando actually be uh, more serious. You know, the way in which, John, we both enjoyed the Lando comics, which I thought was fantastic. So a Lando that's kind of in that area where he's, you know, he he still makes jokes and whatnot, but he also has a serious side. And, he, you know, he's somebody you can take seriously. He's not just there for the laugh. And so um, I, I would really like to see... Uh, just a more nuanced side of Lando. So this is exciting news, and I, you know I think they picked an actor that can do that. So to me, that's the best part of this news. So, well, we were not here to talk about that, but I thought you know we're doing a Star Wars supplemental show. We should probably just comment on some news that just came out. And I have two incredible Star Wars gentlemen, so I I needed their opinion, uh, and I know the listeners you needed their opinion because. Uh, I, I I kind of live and die by the opinion of John and Bruce um, for so much of my life, and and uh, maybe 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 I shouldn't do that. But anyway, we're yeah, here quote to talk Obi -Wan, about this. I'm so sorry. Yeah, um, we're here to talk about the newest uh, Star Wars book that just came out, Ahsoka by E.K. Johnson, which is a lot like the Lost Stars novel. It's a YA novel, and so, uh, but. Big deal that this was coming out. I mean, huge press release for it. Uh, Ashley Eckstein actually did the audiobook, which my wife has listened to a couple times now. She loves the, the audio version, listening to Ashley read the book. Um, so very cool. And I think the hype around this, too, was really neat to see just for me. Uh, even just coming into it, it was neat to see that a character like Ahsoka, uh, a character to which I loved from almost the very beginning had garnered this kind of hype. And I thought that was pretty awesome. So, I mean, that definitely fed into my thought process going into the book. And I want to ask you guys kind of right up front, because I know you're both Clone Wars fans. Did that affect how you liked the book? Because maybe you were a little more hyped up for it than you would normally be about just maybe 
an everyday Star Wars book. I wouldn't say I was more hyped up for this than any other Star Wars book. I kept thinking about Lost Stars because that being a YA novel, and I wondered if this was going to be as good as that. So I was thinking along those lines, and I also know I think Dave Filoni got involved or had some input into this book or at least reviewed it. So so maybe I was coming into this, you know, a little higher expectations than I would have because I thought, A, Lost Stars was a great UA novel, so this might be too. UA? Did I say UA? I meant YA novel. Yeah, I didn't know if it was United Artists was behind yeah, it United as well. United Artists or... doesn't have the license to this, Bruce. Sorry. Okay, well, I won't wait for the movie. But the book was really like on my radar as, okay, a YA, this could be good. Dave Filoni involved. Yeah, okay. But I, I, as I always do, I try to keep my expectations low. Low, 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 low. Uh, I don't think that it affected my my expectations. I think that, um, Bruce, you're right to cite uh, Lost Stars. I think that has really affected the expectation game um, and makes me more likely to read a young adult novel when they release it for Star Wars. Um, it, this made my list. Uh, I had, had a list of things I was most looking forward to uh, consuming uh, as a, a media spectator uh, you know, for fall. So this was one of the releases I had my eye on uh, most. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't think that it, it really affected my, you know, my expectation of the book outside of I was knowing who the book was about. I had an expectation for what the story would cover um, and, you know, what it would portray. Not any specific, like she has to do this story beat or go through this story action, but just sort of an expectation of, okay, I, I need a clearer understanding of, you know, X, Y, and Z coming out of this. You know, that that was the only part that was, you know, sort of expectation for me. I do think for me, I, I was very hyped for this uh, coming in. You know, Ahsoka is my favorite female Star Wars character, and right up there with Obi-Wan Kenobi as my one of my favorite all-time Star Wars characters. So uh, this meant a lot to me that they were going to actually do this. And knowing that they were going to delve into some of the unused Clone Wars stories ideas that they had had, uh, specifically that Filoni has talked about a few times at different panels, talking about those unused stories ideas, I was very excited that that would happen, and uh, I didn't know exactly how that would play into the book and how much they would go into it, but it definitely had an impact on how excited I was. Uh, And I think probably my expectations, too. I I felt like this probably would be more in line with, like, a Dark Disciple because they were going to be using things directly from, you know, what the Clone Wars team had thought of for Ahsoka. So I I do believe there was a huge amount of expectation for me going into this. But at the same time, you know, how all that worked together, I wasn't going to, I didn't know, you know, so, uh, but I was very excited to dive into this novel. And I thought it was really interesting because, you know, where this novel starts for Ahsoka, the very beginning is in a flashback scene where it's the end of the galaxy as Ahsoka knows it. Uh, and it's order 66 is about to happen. Uh, and, uh, I, I like, I really wish, uh, this had been longer as a section just because it's such a cool story uh, and it plays such a big part into everything that had happened in the clone wars. Uh, 
but I I guess I do understand that there's you know what 15 years for them to fill in or have an opportunity to fill in so not just starting the book I had no idea how far this book was going to go so the fact that they didn't completely do the whole Mandalore scene was okay at the beginning but man just the few pages we get on that it's fantastic um you know I I will say this you know it, it starts off basically the, the way that Wendig approached uh his aftermath books which is with uh, you know, interludes and um, thematically and structurally much more successfully used in this book uh, than in those. But having that specific moment, uh, you know, have having, you know, what plays out in the interlude in the beginning play out, it was cool. I completely agree with you. But I think that it, it is a, in a sense, it, what it felt a little bit like a stumble out of the gate for me because then it suddenly flipped and I was left preoccupied, you know, mentally of, well, why, why, why did, why this now? Like, why, why can't you refer to this later? Why can't you weave this into the, you know, and all of that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I think that, I think that it was almost like a double vision moment because I was thinking about the interlude while I'm reading the, opening of the rest of the story, you know, and so it creates sort of like a, a split focus in a sense. And I think uh, that's on purpose. You know, I think that's because that's exactly what Ahsoka is doing this whole book. She's off kilter. She's off focus. She's off everything. And so to put you in that same position that the character's in, I, I think that's really smart. And that's why I felt like that that storyline was there right at the beginning because they're starting you at the same point so that Ahsoka is mentally, which is everything is discombobulated for her. Uh, and everything is is wrapped up in what the past was and where, if any, there is any future, you know. And so I, I don't know. I, I kind of like that, that it's kind of overshadowing everything because it made it feel very much like she's feeling throughout the story. See, this is why I like listening to you guys. I don't even know why I'm here. I just want to hear you guys talk because that's exact. John hit it on the head. That that I think that's what it was for me when I first started reading it. The first chapter was so solid. Or actually, I think this takes place actually outside the chapter. Like you said, the interlude. It's like it's so solid. There's so much going on, and then it just kind of slows down. And we're going into the story. And yeah, I'm reeling back to that. So when I first started reading it, I had a hard time at the beginning. It didn't help that I was tired and on a plane and fell asleep by the fourth chapter. But besides the fact of that, it just, I, 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 do, I do like that first part on Mandalore with Maul, the burial of Rex, and she leaves her lightsabers. I mean, that was so epic and so insightful of this time and what Ahsoka is dealing with that and it just kind of slows down. But it, like you, you, you said, Matt, it, it needs to do that. It needs to kind of reel you up and like she is and there's so much going on and then there's nothing. And then you've got to start over. And it's almost like that's what the book is doing on chapter one. It's starting over the story, even though it's just beginning. Well, and, and I think that that's a really neat way and a neat thing because, you know, the galaxy, again, as I said, it, it ended as she knew it. It ended as everybody knew it. And the, the story is really almost about starting over and finding a new way. And much in the way, uh, and John, I know you 
didn't love the Kenobi book, but this book really mirrors that in the sense that there is this whole struggle to figure out, okay, what does the non-Jedi life look like? And Ahsoka's whole struggle throughout this whole story is to figure out where does she fit in the universe at this point. And sure. So I, I really, again, I think that beginning really, you know, on a high, amazing note, especially as a Clone Wars fan, and then coming down to the absolute boredom that is Ahsoka's life for, um, uh, you know, a good third of this book, it, it really it encapsulates, again, just exactly what she's going through and how difficult this transition for anyone who is a Jedi. I mean, this is what Kanan kind of goes through uh, in A New Dawn with trying to figure out what life's going to be like and all that. Kind of. So I just liked all the different ways in which it's kind of paralleling different storylines to which we know and seeing how, you know, Ahsoka deals with it because it's different than the way that Ben Kenobi ends up dealing with it and it's different than the way that Kanan ends up dealing with it. Uh, and I, I enjoyed being on you know, the arc for her storyline here. Uh, and yeah, it's not super exciting for some of the book, but I think that's really, again, it's it's part of the arc of who she's going to become. I don't have a problem with gear shifts or, or changes in tone like that. And I, like, it has to do more with the, the interlude the interlude structure doesn't lend itself, and again, I said that it was used better in this book to sort of thematically tie into everything that's going on. So I'm not, it's not like I'm ragging on the book, but I do think that starting specifically that way, I almost feel like it should have been flipped to start off with Ahsoka and then you know have the interlude be like a dream sequence flashback sort of thing. I do agree with you though completely that. The interludes here work way better than they do in aftermath, and and mainly the the interludes really, like you said, John, they have thematic resonance with the rest of the story, uh, which I really liked, and I and I ended up liking that they weren't all just about Ahsoka. There were some other interludes that we got, you know, that we get one with Anakin, we get one with Obi Wan, we get one with the planet of Ilum. Uh, which I thought was really interesting that plays later in the, end of the book. So I love the way that she did weave those in. And I, I'm glad, you know, I, I heard her at New York Comic Con say that she stole the idea from Wendig. I'm just glad that she was much more successful at it than he was, I feel like. Sure. I mean, but uh, let, let me just put the, the question then, to bo- I mean, to both of you. I mean, in a sense, right, uh, because, you, Matt, you cited Dark Disciple, uh, previously, Dark Disciple does the same thing with you know these sort of discarded Clone Wars ideas, but turns them into a full story. I'm not saying that this book should have done that, and I'm not saying that this book should have been set during the Clone Wars or anything like that. But in a sense, there's almost like this feeling of uh, like a um, a potpourri of ideas put together um, by having the interludes go back and forth. I mean, do you? Does this book benefit from all of the interludes that it uses or does it, you know, it, it, it almost feels, does it feel at any point to anybody else like there's almost like a, just too much thrown into the interludes uh, to, to sort of speed things along and satisfy some, 
you know, some sort of fan instinct to have all of the gaps filled in. I didn't feel that way. I just felt that as I'm reading the story, and it's the same with Aftermath, that it just kind of interrupts the flow of the story. You're, you're, you're going through and, and you're going chapter by chapter, then all of a sudden it, it just shifts gears to something else completely different, and then it comes back again. And it feels a little jarring, but um, I did like the insight that these interludes gave into the characters and what Anakin and, and Obi-Wan, in addition to Ahsoka. But what I enjoyed most about them is after I finished the novel... I went back and reread them independently on their own, and I liked it better that way. I almost would like it if it was maybe they were all just pushed to the back of the book. It's like a bonus thing that you can read after you read the story, or maybe even before or something. But um, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm really liking interludes in these books. Um, I mean, I like them, but I just don't like how they break up the story. It just it's it's a little jarring. It it doesn't help with the flow. I I mean, I'm gonna be different than you guys. I I think that they work in this book. And part of it is because it's continuing a thematic element again in the storyline. And uh, especially the first few interludes are specifically about Ahsoka. And they're telling her story chronologically before they got to the place that you started with her at the beginning of the book. So it's kind of telling a, a way of telling a backstory almost as if like Ahsoka was remembering those times. So I liked that. Um the the other interludes uh, that are there are, are different because, you know, one of them specifically about Obi-Wan, one of them specifically about Anakin before Ahsoka even shows up on Christophsius, uh, and one of them's from a planet's point of view uh, with reference to kyber crystals. So uh, I can see how maybe those might have broken up the storyline for somebody, but I guess I just enjoyed the subject matter of the interludes enough, and they seemed to have enough to do with, again, the, the actual story itself, that I wasn't completely thrown out, like, what does this have to do with anything? It just it it seemed to make enough sense for me to enjoy all of them, and again, in a, in a way that felt more fluidic with the rest of the story. Yeah, I, I mean, again, to be clear, uh, like I said, like I, it's not that I have uh, an issue with the interludes as a whole. It was definitely more successfully used here. It's, it's more that I can't help shake the feeling like it's just, hey, we had a couple of these ideas laying around from the Clone Wars, so let's just all, you know, let's get it all in one book. And it's like it, it, it just, it just lends a feeling of that they're some of this could have been you know maybe stretched out instead of trying to compress it in all into this one tiny book maybe have a couple of books or maybe have you know three books about Ahsoka one dealing with the Mandalore thing and then right after and then you know speeding her along that sort of thing like it just it it just the the compression feeling is is very hangs over the the storyline for me. Well, to speak directly to that, though, John, I actually think this will probably be a trilogy. I think this book has done so well that they will probably do more because they aren't going to tell this backstory for Ahsoka anywhere else, I don't think, and it's a great place to do it in, in novel form. So I really felt like, honestly, I finished this book and I thought, oh, this is this really feels like the foundation of a trilogy of stories about Ahsoka. And so, and I think it's really because, you know, honestly, this takes place like a year after 
the empire takes over. So it's the first empire day, first anniversary. And then probably maybe six months to a year. So it's like two years of Ahsoka's life. And, you know, we have 12 more, 13 more to go before we get to where we see her in Rebels. So, uh, you know, we have a ton more space for her. And especially since of what they set her up to do in the story, I definitely, I really see them capitalizing and, and creating two more stories. So um, I didn't, I guess I just, I didn't get the compression feeling. I just felt like, it almost felt like that if they were ever going to tell the, the Mandalore story somewhere, it's somewhere else. And they just wanted to give you a taste of it. And then the other interludes, again, they just, they, it was just something they're not going to touch on other places. So they just wanted us to have that somewhere. But I definitely felt like there's a lot more story for them to tell with Ahsoka here in this time period, especially with this not knowing when she'll show up again anywhere else. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I guess, you know, to speak specifically even to the, the whole Mandalore arc thing, you know, that was that was intriguing uh, at, at the very least. I mean, I think that once you get past the opening of the book, once it gets to its flow, uh, it's just it's it's just the the stumble at the beginning was all it was citing. And, you know, once it gets into the actual story of I mean, when it got to her facing one of the Inquisitors, that was wonderful. Um, and tying it together, like you said, to the interlude, you know, and talking about the crystals and those sorts of things like that's really, you know, that that is really neat. Um, I, I just, you know through the entire experience with the book, I, I, I just, and I'm, I'm sure that, you know, I, I'm in the minority on this, but I didn't feel that it was, the feeling I was left with was not one of impact. It was one of, okay, well, th these are story points to get a character forward as opposed to, this is a story that had to be told. You know, like, I, I I know it's unfair to keep referring to other works, but just for comparison's sake, you know, Lost Stars and Dark Disciple, at the end of those books, I felt like this story had to be told, whereas this feels like it's just advancing the character in a uh, almost utilitarian sense at points. I, am I in the minority there? Well, I, I would just say that, yeah, I'm kind of in between because I like the interludes when they had to do with Ahsoka it was almost like flashbacks and giving you some, some backstory on Ahsoka at different points when there was an interlude and it's about Anakin who's not involved in the story and Obi-Wan and the Kyber crystals. That's when it felt more jarring for me. Um, I see. And that's where it feels maybe more like forced in or, or trying to give you too much that it's just like, here, I'm going to throw this in and let you know what something about Anakin or Obi-Wan but with the Ahsoka ones, I felt those fit better. It just felt like flashbacks and giving you some backstory to her character and what she's dealing with at the moment. I like those better within the story than the other ones. Yeah, uh, but I, I'm not talking about just just the interludes. I, I'm I'm saying that like the story as a whole felt more utilitarian than dramatically uh, weighty uh, to me. That that's sort of what well, I'm going I for. I would say that, and I I told. Uh, Matthew this earlier the story was eh, okay for me I felt that there was a lot of good information in 
the the book and i i think that's kind of what maybe you're saying too it's like there there's some good elements in there that they're right. educating us about ahsoka and what's going on at the time but it didn't as a story it that's the weak part for me not that it was a bad story it's just that was the weaker part for me i was thinking a lot about this because john i knew where you were going to come from because i read your review uh and bruce and i talked about this uh, and so i was just thinking okay i don't know where do I put this story? How do I counteract? Because I don't agree with either of you. This story to me feels like Weapon of the Jedi, where we're filling in some really uh, great information about Luke. Did you have to tell that story? Did you have to? No. But does it add something to what I know about Luke, especially when I watch episode five now? Yes. And do I enjoy that? Yes. So to me, this this story feels like, okay, so I know Ahsoka shows up in Rebels. There's 15 years of Ahsoka on her own doing something, what's going on. So to me, that's how I look at that this story. This is us getting her from the Clone Wars to Rebels. And because I know that she lives, it does change the, the storyline. And, and I don't, I mean... I guess it could make it more utilitarian for some, but for me, I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed where they went with her. I enjoyed how they got her to the point where she moves from the galaxy is ended to I can find my place in the galaxy again and, and what I'm, I'm meant to do next. I, and and th- this is the thing. is like We're not necessarily saying... Uh, we're not too far apart on this, I don't, the three of us, I don't think. And to use an analogy just so that I can work fast and furious into this, uh, because you guys took shots at it earlier, uh, this book is a lot like Fast and Furious, the fourth movie in that series. It's, it gets the story forward, it gets things moving, and in a sense, in terms of the broader arc of the Fast and Furious series, it's necessary. Otherwise, you have no way to bridge from two to five and, and, you know, and all of these sorts of things. But at the same time, there's very much a feeling imbued in Fast and Furious where it's like, oh, okay, well, we're all right. Well, this is just, you know, we need this story to get where we're going to, as opposed to when I watch Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift and I'm like, whoa, that was amazing. And I know everything that they were saying and what they were laying thematically that that's all I'm saying. Like, I like them both, but just one serves a, like a, a different emotional uh, sort of resonance than the other. Okay. Well, let me add to, I, I loved, I love Kenobi, but I'll tell you why I like Kenobi better than this book. And again, I, I don't want it to come across that we're trashing this book. I don't think we are. We're just, you know, just talking about those things that didn't work as well, maybe for us. But what I like about Kenobi is I really loved the secondary characters. I really got to know them. And so even though Kenobi and maybe this book, there's 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 long periods of time where there's not a lot going on. I was invested in the Kenobi characters where I wasn't as much invested in these characters. So it didn't seem to really move along the way I wanted it to. I love knowing what's going on in Ahsoka's life. And there's not going to be a whole lot going on because she's in hiding. But just her interaction dealing with these people, I was just like they just didn't mean that much to me. They it just didn't, it just didn't feel that much about her helping these characters because I just didn't care about them that much. They just didn't, they just didn't do anything for me as opposed to Kenobi where they did. So that's where, that's where I feel it's, it kind of slows for me. 
Now, see, this is what's so funny is the three of us are, and Bruce, I, you're absolutely right. We're, I'm not like kicking the book. I, I don't think, it, you know, we're, we're, we're like trashing it. We're just, you know, hitting those parts that, that it just didn't quite click. But I'm going to turn that around on you, and I'm going to say that there's actually an aspect of this that I liked better than Kenobi, which was another book that I was somewhat lukewarm on. Um, and it's that when Ahsoka starts getting involved in a larger scale of helping people, that actually feels more organically the way a Jedi would, you know, who was in hiding, who had to keep their, uh, the, you know, their identity secret, uh, the way that, you know, I, I think it's, yeah, it, it's Bale that says, like, I look for patterns of people who are suddenly helping somewhere, like inexplicably. And it, Ahsoka when she goes about it, it was, it worked better for me than when in the book, Kenobi, you know, in Kenobi, when he's, I mean, he's essentially just being a Jedi on, on Tatooine. And I'm like, you're not doing a very good job of like masking your identity. Like Ahsoka very much came across as this is somebody who I could believe people wouldn't know whether it was, this is just a good Samaritan going around and people aren't going to piece together that, you know, it's a Jedi. There's no lightsaber interplay she's you know refraining from using any of her powers and she's just doing these like real quick hit and fade help missions like she's like oh somebody needs help and like she goes and does something really quick and then you know fades into the background again so I did like that I thought that that aspect of this book was actually more successful than than Kenobi well that brings me I think to an interesting thing (laughs) Um, when I was reading this book all I could think of was the beginning of the tv show Arrow where he's he's like I had to become something else. And that's kind of the process that Ahsoka goes through in the story of, you know, realizing she can't just sit on the sidelines, but she hasn't been able to find what her place is. And I I loved watching that struggle between her because I'm with you, John. I think it was really, you know, Ahsoka is a very different character than Kenobi in the sense that, you know, Obi-Wan has a specific mission. Ahsoka doesn't have any mission. One, she was she left the Jedi Order, so she's not even a Jedi anymore. Uh, and two, you know, she is basically just kind of running for her life in the sense that if anybody did find out who she was, she would just be tracked down. And so her deciding to act in any way, shape, or form really does put a target on her back without necessarily having an idea of what she's supposed to be doing. And so being kind of disenfranchised from a whole different life and then trying to find that new mission, I thought was really an interesting storyline. And like you said, I I loved when the story picked up and that that became the thing, how we were going to connect her to basically Bail Organa and get her involved in the rebellion. And and that stuff, I I just kind of like, uh, well, I, geek flailed all over the place when Bale and R2 showed up and that stuff started happening because I was just so excited to to see her be integral in Did you run the around the room? The rebellion. Yeah, I didn't run around the room, but I, I, I may have turned to my wife and been like, she's talking to R2-D2! <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. And also, just real quick, yeah. and he had, she, she, she couldn't be a Jedi, but then it, she had to be a Jedi because she had to help those people out and they got mad at her 
And she thought it was because they thought, oh, great, she's a Jedi in hiding and she's endangering us. And they said, no, that's not why we're angry at you. It's because you could have helped us out earlier when you and you didn't. So you could have like revealed yourself and done something and you didn't. And they had anger towards her. And I like that part. I thought it was good. I also I really I did like to as you were talking about, John, when she's moving around, I guess it's the last third of the book. And she is helping all those people in the outer rim. And the force just kind of keeps seemingly guiding people to her that need help. Um, but I, I love the kind of unseen hand of the force in the story uh, in the way that it moves Ahsoka around. And yeah, I just, I, I really like, too, the thought process for her as she's trying to figure out what she's going to do. And as she begins to connect the things that, like, specifically in the Clone Wars that they did as the Republic that helped set up the Empire and how she feels partially responsible for that. I thought that was a really interesting insight to any, you know, obviously Jedi that might still have been alive to realize I was a part of building that up. I was fooled. I was duped in the same way that that adds to me something that I'm pretty sure that Yoda feels every day and I'm pretty sure that Obi-Wan feels every day as well and any other Jedi who's still out there. The funniest part that relates to that in, in the entire book uh, is when uh, Bail Organa makes a point to refer to the Emperor as the Chancellor. Yes. And he says it's, he's like, <laughs> Chancellor. You know, like he's making a point. He's like, nobody can hear me say it. I'm going to say it. Chancellor. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> now I have to you, go you call just, him Emperor. You know, he's in there going, Chancellor, 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 <laughs> Chancellor, Chancellor. <laughs> right. And, and that, those, those are definitely story moments um, that I, I, enjoyed a great deal I, you know strangely enough I really enjoyed um, you know one aspect of this because yeah, I mean, there really are some parts that just fire off um, in a very organic way but relay that's the you know the connective tissue story but just are more organic than the others and one of those was conveying how the empire worked how the imperial military structure worked and you know further fleshing out um you know the sort of like how vader works in a sense by having the inquisitor has no rank but he shows up on a military base and it's just understood you do what this guy says he doesn't have a rank and you don't salute him but he you know he's the boss and i you know so that winds up you know for, forwarding that but also i really enjoyed the character who was the number cruncher who figured out what planet to go uh, despoil next. That, I thought, was a really cool invention of this book to have somebody... The accountant, basically? Yeah, basically. But somebody who's an accountant with lives. And it, it really, in a sense, brought across this idea of uh, like a Stalinist sort of thing of... Yeah, here's where they grow things and we're going to destroy it and they're all going to die because we can. You know, how he, you know, what's the weight of the state and we will bring it down on them. And he doesn't even care about anything like that because that's always been I think something that the fans wrestle with is who are these people that go around and build death stars and destroy planets and invade forests and those sorts of things and then you find this guy I, I just I, he was such a compelling character. I would have loved to spend more time with him just because it's you know he is the he's one of the more chilling villains that they've had because he's looking at literally lives in the balance and then his equation gets upset because somebody with force powers showed up. 
oh, I just need to fix the equation. I can still make this work. And, you know, like it's that 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 mind numbing ability to just abstract suffering. And so, you know, like he was a really intriguing character. I I, I really do wish we could have spent more time with him. Was that uh, Jenneth Pillar? Is that who we're talking about? Yes. Yes, That's the guy I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought he was really cool. Yeah, we have, you know, Jedi, we have the Empire, we have Inquisitors, but, you know, it's the accountant that got John happy right there. <laughs> you know. And no, we're not talking about Ben Affleck. But... You know, come on. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm with you. It was really cool. <laughs> No, I, I think you bring up something that's really interesting, John. The, the Imperial way, you know, the, the way in which the Empire works is, is very fascinating. And, and the fact that it's only a year old and already... It's known for oppression to places like Kashyyyk, which it immediately took over, apparently. Uh, just a, a year into existence, it takes over Kashyyyk because, one, I guess it just doesn't want strong people like that, rookies like that, uh, on the loose. And two, probably putting them to work. Uh, so I thought that was fantastic. And the fact that the reason, the only reason this this backwards planet was ever thought of is that it was a place that they could grow the food that they needed to make the nutritional supplements that they're feeding to the Death Star workers. Because this nutritional supplement is for people who work in low-gravity or no-gravity situations. So I just thought that was fascinating that they, the Empire already doesn't care about anything. They will slash and burn uh, agriculture, all they need to, to do what they need. That They'll put a complete moon out of business basically because this you know plant that they're going to grow completely destroys the soil so absolutely no regard for any kind of ecology or long-term effects on the rest of the galaxy no no it's just what we need so and uh you're the poor planet that we you know the poor schmucks who have to deal with it i take uh star wars vitamins every morning and now I think I know where they come from, and I feel guilty for taking them because I know all these people <laughs> gave up their land for that. <laughs> yes, but think of the, <laughs> you know what? I'm not even going. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, I, I, uh, I <laughs> sometimes the brain actually figures it thing fig, figures it out before I say it. So, um, but what I, you know, what I would say is that um, it, it really is cool because. In a sense, it it, it embraces uh, the bureaucratic uh, talk and the bureaucratic uh, mechanisms that so many fans ragged on the prequels for, and this just embraces it. And you know, this is just like having a you know a, a Senate debate about you know a, a, a trade treaty and stuff like that. You know, like it's it's looking at the the mechanism of the state that is, you know, was rejected so wholesale, uh, you know, per conventional wisdom with the prequels, and here they've got a whole fan base flocking to it and reading all about it. Like I just I think that that is that it, it's almost like you know Lucas's revenge uh, to to have people sit down and read about these bureaucratic processes that go on behind the scenes. I I think that's cute. Well, and, and what I thought was kind of fascinating is that by being here on Rada and seeing what the Empire does, we're kind of getting a good picture of what it looks like on other planets. And I was specifically thinking, you know, this is a precursor to where Ahsoka is going to show up on Rebels. And my thought process was, this is probably what it looked like on Lothal, too. 
you know, that they come in, they create a curfew, they, you know, limit group gatherings, curtailing hours of cantinas, on cantinas. Uh, like you said, John, it kind of turns into a communist state where they start banning all sorts of things. And, you know, uh, and yeah. it just it, it really was a, a great what I loved is the way in which this book really set the picture for what happens when the empire arrives in your planet. And uh, it was giving a, a really uh, just a chilling scene of, you know, how people are immediately, you know, put to work in different places and, and uh, you know, life just becomes completely almost unbearable once the Empire arrives there. Unless you're a planet probably like, uh, I guess a, a, a planet that the Empire really does care about that it needs, probably like a Solist or something like that, where there's something else your planet's producing that you have to treat the population a certain way to get that. You know, this planet, they could care less about, you know. They're there to use it, abuse it, and then leave it. You, you know, what's, what's weird is it actually um, triggered a, a thought that I had uh, because there... You know, with Jakku showing up and then there's Tatooine and and uh, Geonosis to an extent there, you know, I've always thought about it, like, there are so many desert planets, right, there, that are that are out there um, in the, you know, in the galaxy. What happens to Rada in this book almost um, or what they're doing almost supports this this crazy idea that I had of. The whole reason there are so many desert planets is because the empire was going through and just raising these, just using up the resource. We got a billion worlds. Who cares? We'll just use up a planet and be done. And then everybody's left on a desert planet and they're like, whatever, you'll either survive or die, you know, whatever. Um, so I like I would I would almost love to sit down with the author and say, were you trying to drop a hint here that this is the way the empire does business? This is why we keep encountering desert planets is because the empire has been wrecking everything like that would be like, was this the eventual fate maybe of Endor when the, uh, you know, when the death star was done, you know, if they completed the second death star, they were like, okay, it's fine. All right, well let's convert the forest to farmland, farm it once and, you know, make another desert planet. Who cares? Mm, that's a but really sort of a crazy point. thought. I, I love it. Yeah. That's a cool idea. And that reminds me, I looked it up on uh, in chapter 18 that, uh, Ahsoka says that, you know, she learned that the main weapon of the Empire after fear was hunger. And so I think about Yoda saying fear leads to anger. And in this case with the Empire, fear then leads to hunger. And it's stripping all these planets of food because it's their way of controlling people and on these planets to be servient to the empire. So it's really cool. And I like the idea that they can do this and maybe create desert planets. And that's why moisture evaporators are selling like crazy at Lowe's right now, because every planet needs one. <laughs> <laughs> Special Evaporator sale on Depot. evaporators at Lowe's. <laughs> do they have one of those uh, crazy, uh, you know, uh, balloon guys that like flops around in the wind? Get your they evaporators. Do. Five for the yeah. price of two. It's hut shaped though. So yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I thought was really interesting too, in, in talking about this idea of the Imperial way and control, so I had a question for you. So Ahsoka already knows the difference between clones and stormtroopers because stormtroopers suck. Clones didn't. Mm -hmm. And so I, 
why not still use clones? And do you think it's because that the way to keep a large segment of the population, make them part of the empire so that they're more malleable and that basically they're a part of the sin? Uh, you know what? I, I will say that um, if, if you look at any totalitarian uh, state, uh, the military understands at least that they're always going to get food. And so, you know, once the the government makes it clear how things are going to go, joining the military almost becomes a smart thing to do, uh, regardless of what sins it's going to be asked to commit, because you're at least going to be able to feed yourself and your family. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think you're right that, you know, bringing stormtroopers in and getting rid of the clones, you know, you, you do make the populace, you know, you bring in a part of the populace of the cause, you, you can conscript people uh, and those sorts of things. But I think also the clones keep, keep in mind they have, you know, the, the age acceleration, and, which I'm sure didn't help um, their cause. But I actually think of Star Trek VI, the first rule of assassination is kill the assassins. And because that's what they do to, Bur to Burke and Samno, right? And so getting rid of the clones becomes necessary uh, in a way because it erases mm, evidence yeah. of the crime. That's, that's, a, that's a great point. No, I, that's, anyway, it was just really interesting, the idea and, and seeing that, you know, that the Empire in the end, it doesn't care about uh, the, the stormtroopers. Um, because they'll just keep throwing numbers at you in, in, in a way that the stormtroopers should become just as impersonable and dumb as the droids that the separatists use, like the Roger Roger droids, you know, the battle droids, the main battle droids. That's exactly what they are. They're just as useless almost as that. But you just keep throwing numbers and you overwhelm people. And that's what the base stormtrooper becomes. And that, that's kind of scary, the disregard for human life in that way. Um, is is astounding. One of the things that that was really that I mean, we learned some really interesting stuff in this book about kyber crystals, and I thought it was really interesting what we do learn. So I wanted to ask you guys because what we learn is that kyber crystals choose force users to present themselves to, that they basically desire as their desired owner, but dark side users don't don't experience that same connection with the crystals. In fact, the only way a Sith can get a crystal is to steal it from its rightful owner. And when they do, and they bend the crystal to its their will, that's what turns the blade green. They call it bleeding the crystal. And that's why all dark side users' blades are red. And obviously we get blue and green and sometimes purple with with jedi so i thought that was fascinating to me that th this what we're learning it's almost like learning about wand lore in harry potter and the deathly hallows you finally figure out how that works like i finally we, we have an answer for why crystals work the way they do inside lightsabers yeah it's a revision though because if i recall my star wars lore correctly through the years and again the old eu was thrown out the reasoning for red blades was that they used synthetic crystals. Yes, that and was the old AU. Yeah, correct. that 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 was yeah, that was the old way of things. This almost seems to harken back to what they had in the old West End Games uh, D six role playing game. Uh, all the other old timers out there listening who played that Hala, and th what they did, they used this explanation 
as almost a, an excuse, well, not almost, but as an excuse for why the uh, Saber effects were inconsistent in the original trilogy was because they were so in tuned with a Jedi and their uh, ability to tap into the Force. That's why the blade looked different in from shot to shot. So that it felt like a, a, a cute callback to that. But I do think that the you know what they go into here is really cool. I do like that. I, I basically I'm agreeing with you that I thought it was a really cool explanation that the color of the crystal truly was a reflection of who was using it and how they were using it. Although, isn't Windu's crystal different? Isn't that why it's purple? Because it's an Electrum lightsaber. Well, I, I will say that uh, the other day, uh, Pablo Hidalgo from Star Wars, the the master over there, was tweeting about this and uh, putting it into terms like Kool-Aid. <laughs> like if you made Kool-Aid, different Kool-Aid packets. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he, he mentioned that for Jedi, you know, you have blue and green and sometimes purple. So uh, I think purple is very rare is my guess. And and I don't know, maybe maybe purple we could you know talk about the fact that Mace Window always kind of skirted with the dark side a little bit um in what we knew at least in the EU the legends line. Yeah. Uh, so maybe that's why he had purple lightsaber or maybe you just have to be a BA MF <laughs> no. to really have well, uh, I, know, I have <laughs> the reason. You know? I actually have okay. the reason. The reason is that Windu's crystal came from Kronos and it bleeds Klingon blood purple. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. okay there yeah. you go. There's Wait, the... shouldn't that just look like Pepto-Bismol then? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends what lighting that you're in. It looks kind of, right. it changes colors a little. <laughs> but no, I love this this bleeding thing. I, I, I This is my favorite part of the book. I, I, well, that's all I have to say. I just love it. And they even said that even if a dark side user uh, uses this will on a rock, even the rock would bleed. Uh, it's just it's just a, such a cool idea that they have to obtain these crystals from a Jedi and then they bleed. I loved it. Hands down, my favorite part of the book. Well, and it was it's really interesting to me because then it, it makes, in a sense, the Sith just the perversion of the Jedi. You know, they are complete yeah. perversion of that instead of anything else. And and any dark side user is a perversion of the force, which is always a balance between dark and light, which is, again, another really interesting conversation, especially as Ahsoka is moving towards the middle. And again, just like the Bendu and, uh, you know, Maybe even Luke Skywalker, who knows himself in, in episode eight, moving more towards maybe the middle. And I thought it was so fascinating here because Ahsoka's lightsabers, and Pablo even tweeted this, nobody was more surprised than Ahsoka when she turns on her lightsabers and they're white. Yes. Love it. And what does that signify? And to me, I think that has to do with her connection in the Force and being choosing basically the middle way. She's not going to be dark. She's not going to be light. She's going to be there to, to help others. And and maybe her connection with the daughter from Mortis, whose last act was to bring her back to life, the purest form of the light side there is. So to me, this is signifying that Ahsoka is off the chain special. Yep, that's how I read it sure. too, and I love it. Yeah. 
I think it also opens up just all of this explanation opens up a terrific possibility if they want to pursue it of, uh, you know, writing a story of, you know, if they have to steal the crystal from a Jedi and then they make it bleed, you know, Vader making his saber after he's in the suit, oh, you know, going out yeah. the first Jedi that he kills. And Palpatine's like, no, you, you, you don't get a blade. You got to make this happen without it. And like that would be a really cool book to read. That is a great story idea, John. From your mouth to Del Rey's ears. So let's to make my happen. wallet. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they're listening. And they you need say, to trademark Give that, that idea. Yes, trademark John Mills. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm pretty sure at least half of the vocabulary is already copyrighted by Lucasfilm, so they have <laughs> they have a legal claim already. But no, I, I thought that that was actually just a, a brilliant way. And again, I think it, it, it the way in which the story is subtly tying into a lot of the other things that they're doing in the different areas, especially with Rebels, I think is fascinating. And so I, I really liked that. I thought it was well done. And it gave us a, really something big to talk about. I mean, we understand Kyber Crystal lore, which I thought was fascinating because... The large Kyber crystal that they use to power the Death Star, any person can see a large crystal, but they have to be specifically calibrated to work or to be used. I thought that was kind of fascinating too. So giving us a, a little bit of a hint about what maybe the Empire has been doing and why it took them so long to build the first Death Star is how do, how do you calibrate a crystal of this size to power a weapon of this magnitude? So I, I don't know. I just I, I liked where it led my questions then about the new Death Star, Rogue One, and all of that kind of stuff. This is what's so difficult for me about about the conversation as a whole is all of these seed ideas. This conversation that I'm having about you know some of the the points spoken about in the book, I am finding more. Uh, sustaining and fulfilling than the actual experience of reading the book. And maybe that is, maybe that speaks to why I'm so uh, lukewarm on it, I guess, is that while I've been sitting here talking about these ideas with you guys, it's been, I've, you know, I've had energetic and passionate reaction to what we're saying and, oh yeah, cool moments and stuff like that. And, that you know that is that is where this book maybe i i am not ragging on the book again but i think that possibly that setting their sights on the young adult audience was a misstep here or they shot too young for the young adult and they needed to bring it up so that they could uh, address some of these deeper things that we're talking about you know, flesh them out more so uh, and and more dramatically uh, in, in the story. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about that r real quickly. I think you're absolutely right, John, because I remember starting the book off and, and it was awesome, uh, I thought. But I did turn to my wife and I said, you know, I think that they made a mistake with this book by making it YA and not just doing it like they did Dark Disciple so they could really dive into things. Because I think with Dark Disciple, they understood that uh, the people that really wanted this book were going to be adults in the first place. Now, 
the hard part about with Ahsoka is that you really are, you you have an age range from, you know, like eight-year-olds to all the way to us, you know, basically. We're not going to give away our ages here. but uh, So that's the age range you have of people that are interested in Ahsoka. Uh, so I think that they wanted to play more towards the younger audience than the older audience with her because, you know, she is the role model for a bunch of little girls that grew up with her. And that's who they're writing this for. They're writing it for us too because they're adding in those things. But I, I, I really think even even more so than with Lost Stars, this book is is really for the ages 8 to 16. And I think they're definitely hoping to capture, you know, the female audience as well in that. So it, it's just not necessarily... I think you're exactly right, John. If this had been Dark Disciple level, I, I think I would have appreciated it even more than I already do. I love the book, but I think it it, it could have been a, a whole other level above this if we had, like you said, allowed for a little bit more diving into some of the deeper thematic elements and things to which the Star Wars lore is being touched on here. Well, I think that's the success also of the book is the fact that it the characters fall into that age range. So if that's what they're aiming for, that's why a lot of the characters were female, the main characters were female and in this age range. But it felt like a Clone Wars show to me. And Ahsoka sounded like Ahsoka. So it felt very much like something I would see in an animated Star Wars series. And that's also the age range we go. And there's there's a lot of depth in those series, too. I, you know, people associate Ahsoka to Rebels and to Clone Wars, which are series on Disney XD or Cartoon Network. And this book felt like it should fit into that that demo that, that they're aiming for on the cartoon series. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's the struggle that they probably had with the story in general, like trying to find that balancing act. So I think that's a tough one. And moving on a little bit, the Inquisitors uh, getting the sixth brother here, who doesn't last very long, especially against uh, a, a properly trained Force user. <laughs> um, I thought it was interesting that that really, you know, the Inquisitors kind of main job seems to be more about searching and hunting down Force-sensitive children and younglings than it does necessarily about hunting Jedi at this exact moment um, because that seemed to be the j- job at which the Sixth Brother was most preoccupied until uh, a Force user showed up. So really there, and, and two, I mean, he's no match for Ahsoka, who doesn't even have a lightsaber when she faces him down so it was just it was very interesting to me the very early beginnings of the inquisitors Uh, i mean scary to other people but to anybody like ahsoka he's kind of like chump change well i you know i and again speaking to the way that the empire works sort of thing like the inquisitors going out and you know how do you stop the jedi from ever rising again or from force users being a problem you go out and you kidnap them and you either kill them or subvert them to your will and you know, and that goes all the way back to something we saw happening in the Clone Wars series with uh, with Cad Bane, and uh, you know they even make reference to it in this book where you know Ahsoka, you know somebody pretending to be a Jedi showed up and was going to steal her, 
you know, it, it makes sense that at least one Inquisitor's job would be go out, find four sensitive kids and let, you know, and we will figure out how to deal with them so that they don't become a threat. What is funny to me about that is I always think back to the novelization of episode three where Dooku had been sold on the idea of raising basically a, a force user army to subjugate the galaxy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was implicitly rejected by Palpatine because of the rule of two. So I, I think that it's it's interesting that they, they present a uh, what would seem to be an inconsistency with the Sith way of dealing with things. Although, of course, you know, yes, we can all come up with all of the different rationales and stuff like that and, and and live with it it's fine I'm not saying that it's like a big problem or anything but I I just think it's it's interesting that there's this definite shift in focus um, with how you know the the rule of two is approached um, sort of the the wiggle room that exists for it so long as nobody becomes a full Sith it still counts as only two yeah <laughs> yeah I the Inquisitor was there wasn't a whole lot of depth like you know he's there and then you know he's gone shortly after but it was a nice way of introducing the idea of inquisitors to this universe and, and what they might be up to and what they're doing and that there may be more out there and the fact that they're going after four sets of younglings really makes it something interesting that i would like to see yet in another novel of what does the empire do when they find four sensitive younglings what 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 becomes of them what do they do with them that would be a fascinating story for me to read i would love to see that but the other thing that came up is that he was actually surprised that a jedi was out there that ahsoka was was found and there was a mention that during order 66 and the purge that thousands of jedi had been killed and i never really thought before but really was it thousands of jedi were there that many in the universe that were killed it's hard for me to imagine all these clone troopers killing thousands of Jedi within like less than a year. Cause that's a lot. Yeah. If I recall correctly, the number and it's never naturally expressly stated on screen, but I believe that the number bandied about uh, in different source materials at the time of the prequels was something like 10,000, I think was the total number and uh, or thereabouts, you know, not precise, you know, it might've been, you know, 9,999 and they just rounded up. I don't know. But I think that it was about 10,000 and that spoke to why the Jedi couldn't, you know, they're not supposed to be warriors because they can keep the peace because they can go around and they can take care of things as they happen. But they're not meant to be these, you know, there aren't enough of them, uh, you know, for what shows up in the Clone Wars. Um, but 10,000... I mean, if they've embedded virtually every Jedi with clone troopers, when the order comes, they're already in position to be whacked. And if you already don't care about whether the clones survive or not, and you know that, you know, Yoda, he's lucky. He's off with two clones, cuts their heads off, and he's gone. But, you know, you look at somebody like... Um, uh, Ayla Secura. Any of the others we see. No, but, but, you know, but Ayla Secura, even if she dodges that yeah. first group... She's got every clone trooper on that planet suddenly hunting her. You know, so like even though there are 10,000 Jedi, there are millions of troopers and conscripts and naval officers and ships and everything out there. I find 
what I find interesting about it is that it indicates that Vader and the Emperor aren't honest with the Inquisitors themselves. Like, the, the level of lying is such that they'll lie even to their quote-unquote trusted servants to maintain control over them. Well, and, and what it raised for me, it was really interesting because we see it a couple times here, and I, I did. I turned to my wife and I said, oh, please don't let this little farty kid turn into the seventh sister. Uh, because it's like, oh, that's not uh, what I want to, right. you know? Yeah. That's not what I want to have happen to this little girl. Even though it does seem like all of the Inquisitors come from a certain race, or maybe the Emperor does something to them to make them all seem semi the same, genetically engineers them in some way, which wouldn't be surprising after what we saw in the Clone Wars, where he's genetically working on, you know, kids, Force-sensitive kids. So, But what all of this got me thinking is Ahsoka wants to do something to help these kids. And again, if this series continues, I would love to see her and, and it, the story exploring the idea of her creating some kind of underground railroad to be able to help them and protect them somehow. I think that would be really fascinating as part of her story. That not only is... Because we see that in Future of the Force, the Rebels episode, uh, where they're saving the child from the Inquisitors. And Ahsoka shows up and she lays the smackdown on both the fifth brother and the seventh sister at the same time. So uh, she seems to have a real care for this issue, and that's something I would love to see explored. Uh, Bruce, I think on your side about the Inquisitor camp, <laughs> Inquisitor summer camp uh, over there on Mustafar, and then the Underground Railroad for future Jedi-lings or something. So I think that would be fascinating. There was this one time at Inquisitor camp, Sorry, I had to get that in there. <laughs> oh, my. Remember what I said about the brain sometimes stopping us before we say things, Bruce? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I also wasn't listening. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, Neither was I. Yeah. He gave me some crap about me really paying attention. I wasn't really listening. So, <laughs> last big thing I thought was interesting was the this idea of the failing order that Ahsoka really sees the way in which the order, the Jedi order, became trapped in its traditions and was not able to see or listen to somebody like a Barris or even a Qui-Gon when he was around. And that they became so entrenched that they, they, they couldn't turn around. I thought that was really fascinating because also, uh, on the same side, Obi-Wan... In his in the little interlude with him, he realizes that Kleeg's love for Shmi is what saved her, something that the Jedi weren't even allowed to have, and something that he couldn't make happen. Anakin couldn't make happen as a Jedi, but Kleeg did. And that it just made me wonder this whole thing, this whole idea of this middle road and seeing how the Order failed, how this is going to affect the Jedi in the future, because to me, it really almost seemed like that Ahsoka was more of a Jedi now than she ever was before because she's being what maybe a true Jedi should have been. I mean, for me, it speaks to, uh, you know, who is Luke Skywalker? And at the end of Return of the Jedi, he's, you know, he is the guy who figures it out. Where 
your love and compassion can power your decision making and it doesn't have to lead to a bad end because you're also, you know, uh, you know, in command of your uh, logical faculties and can, you know, you can weigh the whole picture. You're standing astride both the light and the dark and and can bridge that gap. I, I think that it it definitely speaks to the lesson that, you know, the Jedi should have learned um, as a whole. But at the same time, I don't, you know, I, I'll be interested to see how it continues to play out through the different source materials because, you know, Anakin's dodge in Attack of the Clones was, you know, oh, well, we're taught to have, you know, compassion, which when you think about it is unconditional love. And so I, I, I don't think that it's so much the Jedi didn't, didn't encourage love per se as they sent mixed signals to uh, their own selves. You know, like you can't fall in love and you can't be attached, but be, you know, with limitless compassion and, you know, attachment, you know, springs from that, like those whole, all of those different sorts of, of questions. I mean, all of that to say that, like, I, I think it, it, it definitely does reinforce that the Jedi Order, once it was gone, those who were left did see the value of, you know, you know what Palpatine says, which is that they had become dogmatic and and limited, and that's what you know they calcified, they they became, and so they became brittle and they they fell apart because they were so rigid with their rules that they couldn't adapt and they couldn't grow anymore well and they had another form of attachment which is so interesting it made me think of mace windu in attack of the clones saying to padme that you know dooku was once a jedi he couldn't assassinate anyone it's not in his character he'd become so attached to the idea of what it meant to be a jedi that he couldn't see a jedi falling you know they had become so attached to themselves so wrapped up in themselves that they lost touch with force reality. <laughs> I mean, it, I think that's a really interesting, I mean, that commitment. So it was the lack of compassion and understanding outside of themselves that which really hurt them in the end. And um, when you become so insular, what do you expect? And when Jedi have nothing but themselves to hold to and, and, and no other outside attachments... Uh, and nothing else to ask any questions or give any kind of back and forth to, which is, you know, I think, again, what I, I thought was interesting bringing up uh, Qui-Gon, because, again, in the uh, interlude, Anakin wonders to himself, what would have happened if Qui-Gon had lived? Which I think we've talked about a, a bunch, but I just thought, again, that brought that up into the idea of the Order. Somebody like Qui-Gon, who is very much just in tune with the living force and not anything else. And it also made sense because that's the thing to which Obi-Wan had to learn in his interlude, which was he has to let go of everything else. He had to unlearn what he had learned. He had to let go of the past completely to move forward in the future. But the only way to move forward was to be completely present in the moment with the living force, just as Qui-Gon had told him all those years ago at the beginning of episode one. I don't know, just fascinating stuff. I mean, and that's, I, I think the thing that for me that I really just liked about this book is that it was, 
it was making me think a lot of great things about Star Wars and and bringing a lot of thoughts to my head about the connections between the characters and the things that have happened, the different series, and the way in which the Clone Wars and I think Rebels are very much connective tissue between the two trilogies and bring them together. And I, I think I was really, really liking that this book was helping do that so well, just as those series had done. And so I guess we're just down to that time where I ask you, uh, so Bruce, if you were going to rate Ahsoka, uh, what do you think you'd rate it? You can do it out of five or 10 or... I'll do it out of five because what I'm going to do would be too obnoxious if I did it out of 10. And I would just say that I really did like the book and I, I don't really need to expand on my thoughts on it. Cause I think it pretty much covered that in here. So I'm just going to say out of five, I give it chancellor, 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 four chancellors out of five. Four, four. <laughs> what, what, what about you, John? Uh, oh, geez. Uh, I'm going to give it, uh, you know what? I'm going to give it uh, two and a half helicopter lightsabers out of five. And the reason for that is that, uh, again, as much as I've enjoyed this discussion, uh, which I think has just as much to do with, uh, with, with the both of you as anything else, um, the book itself, the whole was not as great as the sum of its parts or whatever, however that works. It's one of those things where when it all came together and it was all at the end, my final analysis is it's not it's not bad. It's a good book, but I would not this does not hit the level where I would recommend it to somebody who is not a diehard fan. Like I, I would not take this book and say, you know, even though she never reads anything that I recommend that 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 she does, um, this is not one where I would go on the line and say, hey, Mrs. Kessel Junkie, you got to read this book. You know, this is, this is a fan book, so far as I'm concerned, which is not a bad thing. I'm not ragging on it. It's just what it is, is this is for the diehards, and it's a good one for the diehards, and that's just where, it's, where it is. It's uh, it's interesting because this is my plus one's uh, second Star Wars book to read. So her first was Lost Stars, high bar to set her up with, and uh, this was the second. And as she was going through it, I could tell that it wasn't kind of hitting the sweet spot that she thought it was going to hit until the end. And and now she really likes it. Um, and and she is. A pretty big fan. Uh, obviously, she hasn't read as much as I have, but she's seen everything that I have now. So the the fact that this won her over and and she is just diving into you know the Star Wars continuum of of lit that this ended up pleasing her, I thought was a good test uh, for myself. You know, I have to say, I like this story a lot, and I love. I mean, I'm I'm so biased though because Ahsoka is Ahsoka, I and mean, she's just anything Ahsoka is is great with me. And I'm glad this didn't let her down as a character. Uh, it didn't harm the character anyway, so I was very pleased with that. You know, it it wasn't that happening for me at all. So that made me happy. And and all in all, I really enjoyed where this starts. And I'm hoping I'm I'm kind of praying that. 
this is the beginning of a trilogy for Ahsoka and that this is only the beginning of the story and we get to see more of her because I think this is a character that deserves more. I think that the storyline that they set up her with her with Bail Organa and being part of fomenting the rebellion's intelligence agency basically is really fascinating. I mean, how she's involved in setting all that up is great. The Force Kids idea is is a great thing. So that's fantastic. And um, we didn't even call it out, but the little tiny scene that we got with Bale, with baby Leia, little toddler Leia running around his office. I mean, you know, that kind of got me in the heart right there. Like, oh, that's, you know, that, that was just a great, fantastic scene. And, you know, we just don't get much of that in Star Wars yet. And I hope we kind of get to see more of that because it, it is neat to see how Leia grew up because we know about Luke but we don't really know about Leia and it was nice to see that moment of you know he's been a dad for a year and a half now two years you know and and this little girl is his now and he feels that towards her and all he's doing is to protect her um so I just all that together I just I'd have to give this four and a half out of five kyber crystals so white blazing kyber crystals guys i love when we get to do this i just love talking star wars with both of you it is one of my favorite things to do honestly on this planet and i'm so glad that we get to do it here in the 602 club we have great associate producers who allow us to do that through patreon ken trip davis grayson norman lau thank you so much guys now they knew what uh, I'm going to tell you, which is we are a listener-supported network here on Trek FM, and we definitely need your support to make sure that all of this keeps coming to you each and every week. We cannot do it by ourselves. The network is just too big for that. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you can see how you can become part of our team and help make sure that all of the content from the 602 Club on comes to you and everyone else each and every week. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. When you're not here hanging out at Rada's really awful cantina, just drinking the one liquor that we have, uh, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me with you, Matthew, and Dan Gunther on Literary Treks here on Trek FM, and you can find me talking Star Wars fairly often on the Star Wars Report podcast. And John, when you're not bleeding crystals, where can people find you? Oh, I'm never not bleeding crystals, Bruce. Uh, you can find me as Kessel Junkie on your social network of choice. You can also find me here on the Trek FM network, uh, co-hosting Stage 9 with the inimitable Mike Schindler. Uh, you can find me co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. And you can also find me co-hosting a little podcast called Aggressive Negotiations. It's a Star Wars podcast over on the Nerd Party Network. And I co-host it with somebody who is occasionally charming and often wrong. Uh, Matt, would you happen to know who that is? I don't, because he's almost never wrong, so that's shocking. Um, that's it? I mean, his partner me? is, but <laughs> I, anyway. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter, at MattRushing02. You can also, f I'm usually calling Kessel Junkie out on when he's wrong. Uh, you can also find me here on the network, of course, on Literary Trek with Dana Bruce, The Orb with Chris Jones. And, of course, uh, you can find, if you just love Star Wars and you want only the Star Wars episodes of the 602 Club, that feed is actually in iTunes. You can find that under Star Wars, a 602 Club collection. Uh, so 
check that out subscribe to that you can also rate and review that as well and of course you can find me here on the 602 club talking all things geeky so and i love being over on aggressive negotiations with john talking about star wars so if you can't get enough star wars and you can't get enough of john and i which i don't know why that would be you want to check out aggressive negotiation on itunes well thank you so much for joining us and may the force be with you